You are now listening to the January 12th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, your host for the program series, The Attributes of God. Today we will be discussing another communicable attribute of God, an attribute that He has chosen to share with us. It is the attribute of the graciousness of God. In general, gracious is defined as to show favor, kindness, or compassion. The word is used mostly in the Old Testament especially in the Psalms, but there are some uses in the New Testament as well. In many instances, gracious and compassionate are used in the same sentence. We saw that last week in our study on compassion. We read it in Exodus chapter 33 at the end of verse 19, where God said, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And in Exodus chapter 34, in part 6, God says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. The two words are also together in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 23, where the author states, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And again in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 9, where Hezekiah wrote in his letter to the tribes of Israel and Judah, For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. There are more, but we will stop there. I think you get the idea. Solomon had a few things to say about being gracious to the poor in the book of Proverbs. One of them is in chapter 19, verse 17, in which he writes, One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. In the New Testament, Paul uses the word gracious in his second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 8, to define the work that Christians should do. He starts in verse 6 by writing, So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would complete in you this gracious work as well. And in verse 7, But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. And finally, Paul says in verse 19, And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness. So just as God is gracious to us, we in turn should be gracious to others, showing favor, kindness, and compassion to the poor, the needy, and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In closing, I would like to leave you with the ironic blessing from Numbers chapter 6, 
verses 24 through 26, where the Lord instructed Moses to tell Aaron and his sons to bless the people of Israel, saying, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Until next time, God bless you and goodbye.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we heard a great conversation on several different things. Number one, the enemies of trust. And number two, the antitrust strategy. And on today's podcast, we're going to learn three specific things. Number one, how our life-shaping events have lingering influences over the span of our lives. And number two, human and eternal perspectives on the trials of trust. And number three, ways to pray about trust. All this material that we're discussing today comes from the book titled, Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delf, are the authors of this book. And this podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Well, let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. I find it interesting, guys, that you talk about this, this concept of shaping events and the, the lingering influences of those events. Alan, can you touch on that and say more? Yeah, I mean, we've touched on it a little bit over the past few weeks, but I wanted to go a little bit deeper because all of us have very life-shaping events that go on in our lives in the past. And I've mentioned in past podcasts that there's an eight-year-old that got abused and they're 50 years old now and they're still living in the past of the pain. And some of us cover up the pain and uh, we feel rejectable and unloved and therefore we start putting out signals to people that don't touch me. That's the whole, I am a rock, I am an island, Simon and Garfunkel theology. (laughs) Um, But nobody's really a rock and nobody's really an island if they're healthy. (laughs) I, I can't tell you how many people I ask the question, do you have a woman to another woman, a woman in your life that can encourage you and and walk with you through the inevitable uh, pain that goes on in life. And they'll say no. And I'll ask a man. Men are notorious for not having anybody. They have been brought up to think, I need to do it. I'm on a mission. I can handle it. You know, you ask them, how are you doing? Great. They're in debt. They're going bankrupt. Uh, Everything's fine, Alan. (laughs) The wife just left. You know, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. So, but when we're talking about the lingering influences of the, the, what I call is like a grenade goes off in your life and your wife of 25 years says, I don't love you anymore. I don't want to be around you. And I have already packed my bags. I'm out of here. 
that's like a grenade going off. And the question is, what do we do with that? Mm. And initially, all of us are going to feel pain and hurt and rejection and all those emotions, negative emotions. But when the dust settles, uh, are we going to allow the lingering influence of that pain to determine our future? And the answer from God's perspective is, trust in me with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding in all your ways, even in these things that you thought were one way and now your blind spot has been revealed and she's telling you, I'm out of here. Are you gonna trust in God or are you going to let the lingering influence of that pain determine your destiny for your future? Yeah, it's one of those things too where you say in your book that pain is inevitable, <laughs> but we can't get away from that, right? I think everybody can relate to that. But, but this is profound. Misery is optional. Mm. Because it, it is me, am I going to trust in me, myself, and I, this unholy trinity? Or am I going to actually trust in um, God's word? Am I going to trust in those um, relationships in the church that you're, you're talking about? Right. Am I going uh, to trust in God being who he says he is? Right. And, and so there's no doubt there's a lot of pain there, and I'm not trying to minimize that. But the misery portion of this it, tr it really is optional, isn't it? It's a choice. And in Deuteronomy, it says, choose today what you will have, either life or death, blessing or cursing. Uh, Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world. Well, if he says, don't be conformed to this world, what is the positive? be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why our quiet time or time alone with God is so important because the lingering influences of the past will continue to shape our negative thinking. I call it Eeyore theology. You know, in Winnie the Pooh, you have Eeyore and everything <laughs> is bad. You know, oh, poor me, I'm just a donkey. You know, and, and there are people that walk around in life going, Oh, poor me, you know, the sky is falling. What am I going to do? And the truth is that their God is too small. But what's the answer? How do we learn to let God be bigger in our life? And really, that's what this book is all about. And especially the last few chapters of the book get into the how-tos of making that happen. So just a quick you know, the, the basics of the Christian life to make us grow and mature are, uh, yes, misery, misery is a choice, uh, or we will have misery and, and trials in our life, but are we going to stay there? So are you in the Word of God? Are you developing a vertical relationship with God? Are you trusting the Word of God that doesn't change and points to the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? And then are you in fellowship? Are you in relationship? Are you in community? I really don't care what you call it. Are you allowed to share your negative stuff with somebody who loves and accepts you? Because God designed us to have people in our life that accept us <laughs> warts and all, you know? And when you get accepted, think about somebody right now who has changed your life significantly. I would venture to say 
The reason why they've changed your life is because they accept you even when you look terrible, even when you've blown it. They come alongside, put an arm around you and say, hey, man, we can do this. And they don't just chide you and reject you and throw you to the curb. So the word of God, time developing my vertical relationship, uh, time with other people, that's the horizontal piece, and then sharing the, the great things that God is doing in your life with other people, uh, giving thanks, learning to praise him, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. All these verses that have to do with, you know, we mentioned before, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if we burn up in this furnace, we will trust in the Lord. And somehow, either externally or internally, I need to work out that kind of trust. Polly. This is where having an eternal perspective comes in and knowing that our life here on earth is passing away. And we're so concerned with our happiness and trying to be comfortable (laughs) in this life. And we, here in the Western world, in the United States, we do have so many privileges, so many comforts, and our air conditioning and our clean water our clean water and our flushing toilets and our reliable electricity and we we take so much of this for granted with with all these comforts that we have and we're continually (laughs) seeking higher levels of comfort but it's all passing away and we were talking with friends last night about the Apostle Paul, who was beaten and stoned shipwrecked. and shipwrecked Depressed. and Despaired left for even dead. of life. Right. And he says um, that we should have joy. And, th- and he talks about our momentary light afflictions in this earth because we know what awaits us in eternity. And having that eternal perspective is what allows us to have joy. Knowing that we're going through today is something we're going through. It's not our permanent state. We're passing beyond it to the next that God has for us. Right, so that goal set before us has to be so real that I'm willing to go through the pain and don't worry about the misery. Have you ever met somebody that just things don't slow them down? You know, they spill their coffee, the car doesn't start, and they're just going, well, just need to get a bus ride now. And they're just always looking for the next thing to be able to accomplish the mission regardless of all the pain that's going on around them. And I think of, I often in counseling give the illustration of our daughter who was the one of the top, if not the top player, soccer player when she was, uh, what, 13 years old in uh, Arizona. And then she goes to University of Portland. Of course, everybody is the top player because it's a nationally ranked team. They actually won the national championship uh, in 2002 Two. or something. And uh, So when it came to Friday night and all her friends in high school were saying, oh, come out to the dance, let's do it, you know, she didn't even give it a thought. No, I I have a game tomorrow. I'm going to be at home just resting. 
and they're looking at her like, <laughs> you, you're going to be quite a person. You know, you're, are you a socially backward person or what? Um, but later on, they respected her because she had a goal bigger than herself. She had a mission. And so the things that were difficult, uh, peer pressure, um, doing what the crowd does, she didn't even give it a thought. She, if I asked her, so did you feel like you missed anything in high school? She said, no. I, I just I wanted to be a, a really good soccer player, and eventually she hoped to get on the pro circuit or whatever. That didn't work out. But she had a goal bigger than herself. And my question to the listener is, do you have a goal bigger than yourself? And the first goal for us as believers is this is not our home. We are aliens in a foreign land. Our real home is in heaven. How much are you thinking about our real home, which gives us a bigger mission than just cranking up my lazy boy, putting my feet up, getting a nice iced tea, and watching the football game? It's amazing to me when we read Scripture, and, and you guys had many, many examples there. I mean, and when you were talking about the, you know, the heroes of the faith that we talk about in, mm. in the book of Hebrews and, and all of that, you know, the apostle James talked about, uh, count it all joy, my brothers, when right. you experience these, these trials, these shaping influences. And, and he talks about this idea that, that our faith produces something and it produces steadfastness. And it occurred to me like, the Blackaby, you know, experiencing mm. God thing, the, the right. crisis of faith that when these shaping events or, or these bombs go off in our lives, these, right. these hand grenades, Alan, that you're talking about, we've got a choice to allow that crisis to either bring us closer to God so that we can experience him like Blackaby says, or we can trust in ourselves. Mm. There's that word trust. Right. And we're talking a lot about theology. What are What are some of the practical sides that you guys share in the book and you, you mentioned many already and as christians we hear that all the time right it's okay you got to stay plugged in you got to read your bible you got to spend time with him when it comes to trust a lot of times it, it's one of those things to where i just really have to determine alan don't i that i i'm i'm going to believe what the word of god says right and i'm going to repeat and i'm going to trust in him and, and not myself and this is a gray area, isn't it? It's sticky, it's messy, and it hurts, and we want to run from it. It's true. Um, again, we have to nail it down with Scripture. I think of Abraham, who uh, was the father of our faith, and he was going to another place. He didn't know where he's going. He didn't know what he was going to do. And God sent him on his way, and he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And he's looking at him going me and <laughs> well it reminds me when you talk about your theology it's what is our picture of god who do we know god to be and in the book we tell the story that jesus told about the man who went away on a journey and left his three servants in charge of different amounts of his estate and two of the servants um, in, invested and grew and created a profit and the master was very pleased with them and rewarded them but the third one 
did nothing. He was so fearful that he was going to be punished for doing the wrong thing that he buried the the responsibility that God had given, that huh. not that God, that the master had given right. him. And he said, I knew you to be a hard yeah, that's, man. Yeah, that's the thing that I think is really important. Do we see God as that hard man, that some, ver- some uh, translations say, hard taskmaster. In other words, do we see God as Pharaoh? Do we see God as, you know, the man that's putting his thumb on me? Or do we see God as a benevolent, loving, um, more like the prodigal son, where the father comes out and he's running to the son, rather, and in that culture, you, a father doesn't run to his son. He Put, gives him the robe. He puts on the ring. And of course, you know, we can go into another thing with the older son going, hey, I've been here this whole time. Well, you know, what about me? I've been faithful. And I think some of us in our Christian life, we can either look at God as the hard taskmaster and hide and, and sort of like what Adam and Eve did, cover up. And, and he's going, who told you that you were naked? Oh, we, we, you know, we're afraid of right. this God, but we need to flip that on its ear and see that God is always willing to redeem the worst pain and the, the misery that we are going through. He's willing to redeem it for his glory. That's the key. Well, I just think of even Adam and Eve who knew God so well. Walked in the cool the, of the day. Yes, they they walked with him. They talked with him. They were, they did our ministry. They walked and <laughs> talked with him. <laughs> they they had total freedom and openness in their relationship with him until they sinned. Mm. Until they dis- they chose something that he had told them specifically not to do, and then they were so overcome with guilt and shame that they hid from him. And so now they're hiding in fear of punishment from the one that they had previously so openly enjoyed companionship with and and experienced love and and all of the goodness that God had for them. Don't you guys think that as we talk about these these shaping influences, the pain in our life, mm-hmm. that, that mi- if misery is really optional, what is it that makes us so miserable? Is it the fact that we're trying to do God's part and not really doing our part? That we're telling you we're too busy praying. Yes, Dustin, I'm praying. Alan, I'm mm-hmm. praying. Polly, I'm praying. But I'm praying... I'm telling God what to do instead of allowing him to work through my life. So many verses talk about suffering and pain. And again, we live in a culture that's just not a value. I mean, people that are old, people that can't move fast, people that can't think fast, uh, you know, you're not really valuable. It's really the young you know, 20s to 30s, that that's where the moving and shaking goes on. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I don't feel any pain and I'm going to live forever. You know, I think there was even a song about that. Uh, but uh, at 65, I'm feeling some pain and, and uh, misery <laughs> and it ain't getting much better. But you're looking good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, well, they can't see that. But. I, you know, Dustin, you make the point about the, the way that we pray is 
talking to God as if he doesn't know what he's going to do. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. you really need my help, God, because you you don't you obviously don't know how to handle Alan. So I'm going to tell you, Lord, I need you to do this to him and this to him and this to him because he did this to me and that to me. And so I need you now. Here's what you really should do, God. And that's the way we pray. Instead of saying, God, I know that you know what's best. And help me to conform myself (laughs) to to receive what it is that you want for me. Oh, that's so good, Polly. That you would conform, that basically that you're going to take away the the sharp edges Mm. in my life, that you're going to turn up the heat Mm. in my, you're going to do whatever you're going to do. And see, see that prayer is such a different prayer to go, Lord, you knit me in my mother's Mother's womb. womb. Mm -hmm. Psalm 139. You've cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. You're for me. You're not against me. So here you go. You can do whatever it takes hmm. to get my attention. Right. Instead of, here, I think you should do this. And see, isn't that, guys, isn't that idolatry at some aspect when it comes to trusting God? Is That's not that's not the one true God no, in I mean, my brain. We are becoming God. Uh, mm. Somebody used to use the phrase Godship, that we we become our own God. And we, many prayers are telling, like we've been saying, are directing God as to what to do, because this is what I want. I mean, how many people have you prayed for that you said, um, Lord, if they need to go through this cancer and it causes devastating results, uh, but it will bring forth a pure life, do it. I mean, most of us are just saying, Please pray that there is no pain in this procedure. Please heal him. I mean, it's all about the positive and not about the negative. And I'm not saying we have to always do that. But I think if we ask God, what do you want me to pray? I think James says, you know, don't, don't uh, plan that we're going to do this or that because nobody knows what tomorrow will hold. Yep. Well, and, and this is something that I was thinking even before we came into the studio today is the idea that Hebrew says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hmm. So he is, he rewards us for seeking him. He reveals himself to us. He shows us what he wants for us. And he, he gives us what he knows that we need. And he helps us to see, yes, God, I realize now I needed that, even though it didn't feel good when I was going through it. It wasn't what I thought that I wanted. But you have rewarded me for seeking you as I've gone through this experience. Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delf at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book, along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session, a one-on-one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, Thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week.
Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Lord of all. He chose and seed of Israel's race, he ransomed from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Captivated and Compelled by Love. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. First John chapter 3. Here we go. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you 
so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Well done. Reflects the love of the father. So when a father loves his children and those children experience that love and enjoy that love and live in that love, then they will reflect that love for one another. I pray that it would be a people overwhelmed, just captivated by God's love for us. In a 1 John 3, 1 kind of sense, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I look around this gathering today, not just in this room, but another pretty different people. We live in different parts of the city. We live different lives. We have different backgrounds from over a hundred different nations. We have different personalities, we have different jobs, we go to different schools, we different ages and stages of life, we have different problems, we have different political positions. Some would say our political positions are problem. We're different people, but one thing brings us together on this Sunday. We are children of God, loved by God as his sons and daughters. Just why we never look at any of those other things to unite us. Because they're not what makes us family. What makes us family is the love of the Father. We're captivated. May we be all the more, just week after week after week, all the more captivated by God's great love for us. And then as a result, they would be compelled by God's love for others. This is what we want to be as a church, captivated by God's love for us and compelled by God's love for others. So we heard 1 John 3, 1 through 10 last week talk about how we're children of God, captivated by the love of God. So now let's read verses 11 through 24 right after that. And I want you to see this theme of love for others. So start with me in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart for him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. This is his commandment 
that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Did you hear it? All throughout this passage, love in the family, love for one another, is intended to reflect the love of the Father. And when you think about it, that has been the emphasis from the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry. When asked about what is the greatest commandment, what did Jesus say? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. He tells his disciples in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this we'll all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Did you hear that? This is how people will know that you're a disciple or a follower of Jesus. Not because you say you are. No, this is how people will know that you're a child of God by your love for other people. Which is why John, so the same John who recorded Jesus saying that, John is now saying in this letter to the church, if you don't have love for one another like this, there's reason to question whether or not you're actually a child of God. Because love in the family will reflect the love of the Father. So as the church, God has designed us, brothers and sisters, to be known by our love for others. That is how people will know that we are followers of Jesus and children of God the Father when we are laying down our lives in love for one another. This is God speaking this to us right now as his children. This is how he's designed us to live with love for one another. So how do we love like this? And what John does is he points us to a contrast we need to see in the first part of what we read between hate and love. So starting in verse 12 and all the way to verse 18, we see this contrast. So here's how the Bible describes hate. So follow this with me. Hate originates with the devil. John goes all the way back to Genesis chapter four, the beginning of the Bible, when Cain murdered his brother Abel. And the Bible says, Cain was of the evil one. That's a reference to the devil who was the author of sin in Genesis 3. And remember 1 John 3 said last week in verse 8 that the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Jesus said of the devil in John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. So the devil is the origin of hate, which the Bible basically defines as selfishly seeking another's harm. Hate selfishly seeks another's harm. Harm. Why did Cain murder his brother? Verse 12 asks, because he was evil. His brother was righteous and his self-centered jealousy led him to harm his brother. And the ultimate example of hatred, the ultimate example of a desire to harm someone else is Cain taking the life of another. That's the ultimate example of hatred person's life is his most precious possession. So to take it from him is the greatest sin we could commit against him. But this is where we remember what Jesus taught back in Matthew chapter 5 verse 21. Remember when Jesus said, you've heard that it was said you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
So hatred is not just outward action like murder. It's an inward attitude of anger toward another person. Bible beckons every single one of us, including myself, to examine our hearts and ask, is there evidence in me of anger toward others that is the opposite of love for others? Bible beckons us to repent of that, to turn from that. And don't miss the everyday effect of hatred here. So you go down to verse 17 where John says, if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So don't miss this. The everyday effect of hate is indifferent that leads to in indifference that leads to inaction. This is where we're seeing a hatred, not just in murder, but in anger and now in indifference that leads to inaction. So we may not murder someone. We may not even be angry towards someone. But if we see brother, sister in need, and we're able to meet that need, yet we don't, we choose to close our heart against them, that is not the effect of God's love. That's the effect of hate. Not just seeking another's harm, but content to do nothing about another's harm. The Bible says this is not from God the Father. This is actually evidence of spiritual death. It's evidence of a lack of God's love in the heart. Which is why John says what he does in verse 13. He says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. And remember the world, that word in John's usage here is a picture of a, of a system set up against God and his word and his ways. He says in verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love like this abides in death. And we see all kinds of evidence of hate and hurt in the world around us. I read an article recently about the rise of hate groups in our country. This article particularly talking about racial lines. And the Bible says, don't be surprised because absent the love of God the Father, hate is the result. But not with you, John says. Not with the church. The church should be different. Which is what was so convicting earlier this year, right? When we looked at racialization, we saw the church was in many ways even more racially divided than even the world. That should not be so. It must not be so. And we can't be indifferent to that. We want to work to see that change because followers of Christ who know the love of the Father are different. And not just on issues of race, in every area of life. So see the contrast between hate and love. So love originates with God. Verse 16 makes clear that we know love because of God. In a couple of weeks, we'll be in 1 John 4, 7, which says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The origin of love is God. He's the author of love. Love comes from, emanates from God. And instead of selfishly seeking another's harm, what does love do? Love selflessly seeks another's good. Selflessly seeks out another's good. And by selfless, that means you you do that even when that other person may not deserve it, warrant it even reaches his former guard who had tortured him for years. There's a picture. And this is love. It's Christian, Christ-like love that doesn't say, okay, who deserves love for me? The world loves like that. The world loves people who can get something as a result of our love for them. 
What does it mean to selflessly love that which will bring nothing to you in return? And the ultimate example of love is not Cain, but Christ sacrificing your life for one another. This is how we know what love is. This is how we even know what it is, the Bible says in verse 16. Jesus laid down his life for us. You think about it. We said earlier that a person's life is his most precious possession. So the greatest harm you could do is to take that possession from them, their life. So what is the greatest good you could do for somebody else? Give your life for them. And this is what Jesus has done. 1 John 3.16 sums up the essence of Christianity. So if you're exploring just kind of new to Christianity or kind of your own faith, just hear this good news. This is the essence of the Bible. We have all, every one of us, has sinned against God. We've turned from our creator's ways to our own ways. It looks different in all of our lives. But we have sinned against him and we are separated from him. And because he is good and holy and just, we actually deserve judgment for him. But God loves us. God loves you so much that he has sent his son, Jesus, to die for your sin. This is what 1 John 3.16 is teaching that Jesus has laid down his life for you. He lived a perfect life, a life with no sin, and then even though he had no sin in him, he chose to pay the price for sin, death in your place. Jesus died on a cross. That's what the cross of Jesus is all about. It's him paying the price for your sin. And then three days later, he rose from the dead so that anyone, including you, right here today, by putting your faith in Jesus, by trusting in his love for you, God will forgive you of all your sin. He will count Jesus's death for you, the forgiveness of your sin, and he will bring you back, restore you into relationship with him forever so that you can have eternal life. We invite you to believe in Jesus today. Trust in the love of Jesus today, knowing this is the supreme example of love. He gave his, he laid down his life for you that supreme example of love, how does that play out in everyday life? Well, the everyday effect of love as opposed to indifference that leads to inaction. The everyday effect of love is compassion that leads to action. So it's the opposite of hate. Instead of hate, closing your heart to someone in need, you love, you open your heart to someone in need. And you do something about it. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, just talk about this, but in deed and in truth. And this, verse 16 says, is what we ought to do. So followers of Jesus ought to, like should, have compassion in our hearts when we see people in need that leads to action on behalf of those in need. And when we do this, it is evidence of spiritual life in us. Again, verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Notice what that doesn't say. That doesn't say, if you love people, you will earn eternal life. No, this says, if you love people, you will show that you have eternal life. That's a big difference. Love for others doesn't earn eternal life. Love for others is evidence that you have eternal life. Sacrificial, selfless love is evidence of spiritual life inside of you which is exactly what John says next in verse 19. So go from this contrast between hate and love 
to a confidence that we can now have as children of God, put it all together, as sons and daughters of God, as the church. Follow this. One, God enables us as his children to love like he loves. This is what 1 John 3 is teaching. I want you to think about what this means. God enables us as his children to love like he loves. This is how we know, verse 19 says, that we are of the truth, that we're children of God. Verse 20, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. Now, what does that mean? When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. There's actually a lot of debate among biblical scholars about exactly what that means. So after spending a ton of time studying this part of this passage this week, just wrestling with it, here's my best attempt to summarize what these two verses mean, verses 19 and 20. We do not naturally have hearts that are inclined to love like this. We are actually quick to hate, quick to become angry, quick to be indifferent. We're quick to think about ourselves, aren't we? Always think about how's this gonna affect me? That's where we're, how we're prone to think, part of having a sinful heart in this world. But God, 1 John 3 teaching is teaching us, is greater than our hearts. And God our Father has given us as his children, his heart, new hearts, hearts that are inclined to love like he loves. Such that when our hearts are prone to hatred or are prone to anger or are prone to indifferent or to focus on ourselves, God gives us supernatural power as his children to love instead the compassion he feels and to do what he does, to lay down our lives in love for others in need. So this is a kind of love that is not natural to us. It's supernatural. It's God enabling us as his children to love like he loves. I said to one sweet sister in Christ, she's standing in front of a group of about 20 plus third grade girl personalities represented in that little room. And she's got her Bible open, just trying to teach them more. I just pulled her aside. I said, I just want you to know, uh, you're the hero here on Sundays. This is not natural. That's supernatural love. And it's, those are just two small examples. It's playing out in so many different ways here. Other, it's playing out in here. It's playing out in our community. You may not know this, but so specifically, Fairfax County just nominated top community partner. That is a testimony to God's love in and through you. Every week, Title I schools all across the DMV are calling us with needs they can't meet and members of this church just are responding immediately. This past Friday, I heard a story, a single mom in our community with two kids, five and six years old, they didn't have enough food for the weekend. And one of you just immediately heard that and responded. And that family had food for the weekend and relationship that goes far beyond that. Another example, last week I mentioned in our gathering prayer requests from a 25-year-old in our church family with special needs who was wanting to be in a place that they're living right now in assisted living center for the elderly and wanted to be in a place where they were around people more their age. And immediately I'm standing out in the lobby afterwards and somebody comes up and says, hey, can you make the connection? I can do something about that. Now you wouldn't 
five minutes after the gathering was over, that need was being met. So I could go on and on and on, like you were doing this. I praise God for the evidence of life and love in you, in this body. And at the same time, I want to encourage us, let's just grow in this all the more. Let's be honest. We are all prone not to love like this in different ways. Some of us would be glad to serve somebody in our community or even in the church on Sunday. But when we're at home and nobody else is watching, there's such anger with our spouse, our kids, or our parents. We would never treat somebody else in the church the way we treat our own family. On the other hand, some of us are are really focused on our own families and caring for our own families to the point that we're not willing to serve other kids on a, on a Sunday or not willing to reach out in the community around us. And there's just all kinds of different ways that each of us needs to grow in this. I mean, look at the way we spend our money. You'll see a significant measure of how focused we are on ourselves and on others. So we all need to examine our hearts. It's gonna look different in each of our lives and just ask, how am I not showing sacrificial love to others? And to repent, to say, God, you are greater than my heart. Please change my heart. Make my heart more like yours. God is pleased with that kind of praying. Not with the making excuses for why we're not loving. Like, God, help us to love like you love. May that be the overflow of reading this passage today, that we're just pleading for his love in our hearts individually and then as a church like we've been working on our church budget for the next year that we'll present closer to the end of the year and we need to look at ways we can sacrifice when it comes to our comforts in the church in order to give more to others needs in the church and and needs in our city and needs around the world when when I go and visit a mom just a few miles away from where I'm standing right now and she has a special needs child and, and another child she's they're renting a room in a house with a bunch of other people she doesn't know. Her landlord may likely seek favors from her if she's not able to pay him what he wants. And she's our sister in Christ. We cannot be the church if we are closing our heart to our sister in need. What is more important that we're surrounded by comforts that we like at our campuses once a week that she and others like her experience the love of God in their lives every day. And not just here, like I think about what's, represented in our brothers and sisters around the world, some of whom are literally starving right now. And we've got to ask the question, are we going to close our hearts towards starving brothers and sisters in the time and place God has put us in? Or are we going to open our hearts to them? Are we going to respond to them? What's it going to be with indifference that leads to inaction in our budget? Or with compassion that leads to action in our budget? And we've got to ask these questions as individual followers of Jesus and in our families and then together as a church. Let's ask God to enable us to love as his children the way he loves, supernaturally, in ways that are not natural to us, in ways that are very different from what we're inclined to do and very different from the world around us. God, you're so much greater than our hearts, so make our hearts like your hearts. In ways that increase our confidence before you. So now this word gets really good, verse 21. Beloved, so those loved by God, with God's love in your heart, if our heart does not condemn us, meaning if, if God's heart is overcoming our heart, then we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Follow this. As God enables us as his children to love 
like he loves, then we will more and more and more live for what pleases him, which will then totally transform, First John 3 says, our prayer lives. So God enables us, follow this, God enables us as his children to love as he loves. And then God emboldens us as his children to pray for his purposes. God emboldens us as his children, sons and daughters, to pray for his purposes. So put this together. If we love like God our Father loves, then we will desire what God our Father desires, right? When we love like God loves, we desire what God desires. Verse 22, we live for what pleases him. And when that's the case, when we desire what God desires, then we can ask for whatever we desire and know that we will receive it. Desire what God desires, we can ask for whatever we desire and know that we will receive it. This is the key to prayer, like the key to prayer. Because many people hear verse 23, whatever we ask, we receive from God and we think, wait a minute, I've asked God for all kinds of things that I didn't receive. And people wonder, is this a blanket promise that anything I ask God for, I can get? And the answer to that question is obviously no. We must understand this verse in light of its context. This verse is saying that the key to prayer is God's heart overtaking your heart as his child such that you love as he loves, you desire what he desires, you live to please him and that changes the way you pray because you pray for what you know pleases God. God, I know that you are pleased when your name is glorified. So I'm praying, glorify your name in this situation. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. Hallowed be your name. That is pleasing to God. God, I know you are pleased to show your power on behalf of the weak. So show your strength in my weakness. You know it pleases God to show strength in weakness. God, I know it pleases you to give wisdom when I ask for it in a hard situation. So I'm in a hard situation. I'm asking, I'm trusting, and I'm pleading for wisdom knowing. I know that you will give it. Now, there are some things we ask God for that we don't know his will in, right? Like we ask God to help us be accepted into this school or to get this job or to heal this disease, any number of other things that are on our hearts. And it's not wrong to ask for those things. It's actually totally right to ask for those things, like children asking for something from their dad. But we ask for these things with a heart that trusts our dad and desires whatever he desires. So the prayer goes something like this, God, I pray that I might be accepted into this school. I'm asking for that at the same time. I'm trusting. You're my father. If you know it would be best for me not to go to that school, then I trust you with that. And I want to follow you wherever you deem best instead of where I want to go to school. I desire whatever you desire, and I know that you'll lead me in what is best. And that's confidence in prayer. Or God, I pray that I might be healed of this disease. God, I pray for that. I plead for that. I pray for my spouse or my parent or my child that they might be healed of this disease. God, I'm asking for that. The same time I ask for that, I am trusting that you are my father, that you're a good father who knows what is best. I want you to be glorified more than anything 
else. And if you will receive greater glory by sustaining and strengthening and satisfying me or him or her in this disease, then I want that. I want what you want. God emboldens us as his children to pray for his purposes because we're driven. What's driving us is whatever is most pleasing to him as our perfect father. We know whenever we ask for things, we're the child, he's the father. We're the imperfect child, he's the perfect father, which means we can trust him completely. Realizing you're a child of God totally transforms how you pray. Confidence you have when you pray. As his children, God enables us to love like he loves, to boldens us to pray for his purposes, and then God empowers us as his children to live by his spirit. So verses 23 and 24 just summarize the Christian life at the end of this passage we read. Summarize Christianity beautifully. Follow this. Christianity is a supernatural life. So verse 23, this is the basic commandment for the Christian. John says it's twofold. We believe in the name of God's son, Jesus Christ. Believe in his name. Trust in Jesus as the savior of our sin, the Lord of our lives. And we love one another. When we, and they go together. When we believe in his name, we will love like he loves. And both of those things are only possible because of the supernatural work of God's spirit. The spirit, John says at the end of verse 24, whom God has given us. How does someone come to believe in the name of God's son, Jesus Christ? The spirit of God does that work. God's spirit opens our eyes to believe in Jesus. I have prayed for that today, like right now. I have prayed, because I believe God's doing that right now. I don't believe those, those of you who are visiting with us and exploring your life, your faith, that you are here by accident right now. I believe God has brought you here to hear the greatest news in the world, news of his love for you and God's spirit. I believe opening eyes even right now to say, why would I not receive this love? Why would I continue to live my own way instead of the ways God, my creator, has made me for? I want to be restored to God. I want to be forgiven of my sin before God. I want to have eternal life with God through Jesus. God is opening your eyes to that reality by his spirit right now. I invite you to respond to the work, the supernatural work of God that he's doing right now in your life. And realize, Christian, that's how any one of us became a Christian in the first place. God, by his spirit, did this supernatural work. We were living life our own way. God opened our eyes, there's love for us, and we turn from ourselves and we trusted in Jesus. That's supernatural life. Then, so keep going then, how does somebody then start to love others like God loves? God's spirit does the, that in us. The Christian life from beginning to end is a supernatural life. That's the whole point here. Abiding in God, God abiding in us. This is God producing his life in us and you and me in a way that doesn't just affect you and me, in a way that affects everyone around us. So Christianity is a supernatural life characterized by supernatural love. Kind of love that's not natural. Kind of love whose origin is supernatural. Kind of love we can't produce on our own, that only God can produce in us.
ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.